Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. In the Gospel of today, we are now in the last uh, discourses of the Lord to his apostles before he leaves, before the Passion, and there are a number of chapters there during the Last Supper, which scholars call the Book of Signs, and then moves on to the Book of Glory within John, because Jesus' hour has come, and John spends several chapters on the Last Supper discourses, fine-tuning all the details of our Lord's last words. He tells them that he will leave, and where he goes, they cannot come. While they're at table, Jesus prophesizes uh, two lapses, in particular among his disciples. Of course, we know Judas Iscariot, who would betray him. It's quite something to prophesy that somebody will betray. And that Peter, who despite all his zeal, would deny Jesus three times during the Passion. These are prophecies that he's making. The apostles don't quite understand, but they are powerful prophecies they, because the, they are weighty in their in their reality, the reality of betrayal must have weighed heavily on the apostles as they heard this. And in that tone, he kind of confronts them because of the upheaval of those words. He tells them, do not let your hearts be troubled. I am going to prepare a place for you. But where I'm going, you cannot come. But I'm going to prepare a place. Of course, in front of these words, some of them don't understand. In particular, Philip doesn't understand. And he asks where he's going. Where are you going? You're going to another city? They don't quite fully understand the notion of him going as being his death. And uh, these questions of Philip evoke some of the great I am statements. That's where he says, I am the truth, the way, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And even with this, I am. You know, I am the way, the truth. I am the life. Even this doesn't seem to satisfy Philip, who asks him then, well, then, then show us the Father. Show us him now. As though Jesus would be able now, in their presence, to show him God the Father. And that's when Jesus tells them and tells Philip specifically, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. But he says it in a tone, I mean, I thought I'd made this clear, my unity with the Father. So if you see me, you see the Father. And uh, 
he says this still trying to comfort them, to clarify the meaning of his words, which in many ways the apostles were not fully ready for, despite all they had seen, the miracles and so forth that they all seen in his life. And he clarifies, okay, you may not understand now. I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to be with you always. The Spirit of Truth, which the world cannot accept because it neither sees nor knows it, but you know it because it remains with you and will be in you. The Advocate of the Holy Spirit that the Father will send in my name he will teach you everything and remind you of all that I told you. These are central words there that are in today's gospel about the coming of the Holy Spirit, the one who will dwell with them at Pentecost, and we're preparing for Pentecost. You can see why we need time to prepare for this. The understanding of the, the presence of, of the Holy Spirit in the early church, but of course also with us in our life the Lord calls the Holy Spirit uh, the Spirit of Truth calls him the Paraclete which means he is a consoler he is a, a witness he is an advocate he is a kind of a spokesman the Spirit of Truth well meaning he is one with God is one with Jesus. God and Jesus are the truth. The God is truth. And uh, the Spirit performs a function to deliver the truth. That's why we say he's also the revealer. He reveals the truth that is somewhat hidden to us. He reveals it in Christ to people. And by what he does, well, people are led from ignorance to truth. And as paraclete, paraclete is a, is a word that etymologically means called next to one. You're called next to one. You're not you're like you're called to somebody's bedside who, who is dying or who is suffering. So you're called to be next to that person, to hold their hand, to be with them. That's the paraclete. And the reason the Holy Spirit comes as paraclete is to accompany, to console, to protect, to defend. You know, you, you're, you're there next to, next to us, Lord. And therefore, the Spirit can act among the apostles, among the disciples. It's not their power, their strength, their intellect that is really working. In the early church functioned, it wasn't their brilliance, it wasn't their intellectual geniuses that was really functioning. Ultimately, it was really the Holy Spirit, the consoler, that was kind of flattening things out to help them against their ups and downs. He will always be with those who believe in Christ, dwelling in them. That's why we see that the Spirit for example, manifests himself above Jesus at his baptism, indicating that he was with Jesus. You know, that, that's like a primary function of the Holy Spirit, 
know, to be there. This is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. And there, you see the dove there above Jesus, so that his coming will make it possible for Christians to really be in Christ. These are all mysterious words that we want to dig deeper into, so that we, on one hand, are ready and understanding the the reality of Pentecost, which we will celebrate, but that we can really live with the Holy Spirit and, and actively engage in Him. And of course, it explains why Jesus had to go, because He had to be sent by Jesus. It's as though the Holy Spirit is like the personal presence, the Son's personal presence among believers after His glorification. And He's there to guarantee the effects of the work of salvation. It's not simply that the disciples had a good memory and recalled everything because they were good, humanly speaking, but they, you could say they were transparent and allowed the Holy Spirit to act in them. For John, in these last chapters of the Gospel, Revelation in Christ is, is carried out in two stages. God becomes first incarnate in a real human form, a real human being, to draw all to him. So he, the Lord is visible, um, but he is limited in time and space. He only lived for a certain amount of years. He was only in certain places. So, it is God becoming incarnate. But then secondly, he comes free of any limitations. He is now not incarnate, but invisible. He therefore completes the visible stage, extending his presence now to all humanity, not limited in time and space. He's still present, but invisible through the, by means of the Holy Spirit. So we can't just say simply that I wish I had been born during the time of the Incarnation. And of course, that would have shown him very, very visible and, uh, you know, we could see him and touch him. But he continues through the presence of the Holy Spirit. It helps us to understand how real the Holy Spirit truly is. And in other words, the Holy Spirit continues the revelatory work begun in Christ and makes it possible for people to take advantage of that revelation. And that, of course, guarantees the work of the apostles, it guarantees the work of the, Holy, of the early church, that is, the ability to interpret the truth. That's why when we go back to the early church, we go back to that time so that we understand how the Holy Spirit worked among the apostles. And that we say that revelation ended with the death of St. John, Without the Holy Spirit, well, all revelation will be dark, obscure. Everybody will have their own opinion. The smarter ones will win out. It'll be hard to read. It'll be easily misinterpreted. It would lead to lot, lots of divisions. This presence of the Holy Spirit also has to refer to our own fidelity. That is, the faithfulness to our call. 
our vocation. Faithfulness to the mission that we've been entrusted with, despite our weakness, despite our failures, despite our limitations, our lack of time, our, our not always our great health. That's why in today's Gospel, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we shall come to him and make our home with him. Those who do not love me do not keep my words. My Father will love him and we shall come to him and make our home with him. These are very strong and palpable words about God's presence in the Christian, in, in grace. That is, the Holy Spirit will dwell in us, but also dwell in us to help us maintain and keep faithful to that vocation he's given us. Meaning, if we love Jesus, he and the Father will come, make their home in us. He will make his home in us. It's interesting that he doesn't say he will make his house in us, but he will make his home in us. A house is not always a home. We know that, uh, that God is in every soul, in, in a state of grace. And St. John explains that in, in some souls, it could happen that the, that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is there, but almost as though he were in a foreign place, a foreign country, in a kind of a culture shock. Some places, he could be in a soul, but it's, he doesn't feel comfortable, it's a foreign place, he doesn't know the language. Other places he's there, really, other souls, that is, he's like in his home. In Spanish they say, I think they say something like, uh, when you're at home, you're, estás en zapatillas. You can walk around in slippers. You know? When you're at home, you, you walk around in slippers or even in bare feet or in stockings. So while we ask him, do we offer him a warm and appealing home? You have a very important task to make a rather institutional-like building made of concrete and, and brick and heavy-duty walls and long corridors you have the, the opportunity or the, the task, the difficult task of making this into a home. It's got a large vestibule, typical of kind of large residences, institutional residences. But now you walk in and it's... In fact, I heard somebody say, who was coming from one of the other residences, he says, well, this, is, this place is like a, it's like a home. I said, yes. <laughs> That's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> and I showed him the living room. I said, well, this is our living room. This is where we have our get-togethers. Oh, this is beautiful. This is a very, very welcoming place. I said, yes, it is. And it's almost as though, you know, when you sometimes show somebody a center, you go, well, this is the oratory. This is the most important room of the house. And then you show them and they go, wow, this is beautiful, you know. Now we have the Lamb of God there, right? The sacrificed Lamb of God that, that you explain to them. And we have St. Joseph there. And, 
the people are, you know, generally very impressed. They see, say, Jose Maria. The other day I showed somebody, and he went up and touched the little relic there of Saint Jose Maria. But the living room should have similar effect ultimately. It's a home that makes them feel, you could say, comfortable that they belong here. But that's ultimately what our soul has to do. That's that's what our interior life has to do. Do we offer him that kind of home, that that kind of comfort, where the Holy Spirit can really be, if you like, at ease? We can just give him a place. We can give him a house that will kind of leave him homeless. I spoke to somebody who was precisely homeless, and I asked him, I asked him, so you're homeless, so, you know, where do you live? And he says, well, I live in my car. I live in my car. And he he drives around, and and, and I'm trying to imagine what it's like to live in your car. And uh, he said, well, I've, I've perfected the art of living in a car all winter long. And of course, he has to keep it running, otherwise it'll get too cold, and and that, uh, of course, costs gas. And and then he'll go to these uh, homeless shelters for food and stuff. And he says, "Well, they're homeless, and they are not homes. You know, they're dirty. They're they're kind of gross places." He said. But in some ways, his car was more of a home for him. And. Um, we have to make the Lord really feel at home. God needs to be allowed to, you could say, enter into every room of our soul, you know, and and to, it's as though he's given every key to enter and to open every cupboard, every chest, every drawer. The Lord said, if, love, if a man loves me, he will be, it's as though he's saying he will, he will give me the keys of his home. He's no longer a guest, but a householder or a homeowner. He belongs there. If we could apply that to how sincere and how transparent we are with the Lord, and ultimately also in spiritual direction, you know, that, 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 that we can let that, uh, that person into every nook and cranny of our soul, every drawer, and every cupboard. The person who owns the house has permission to arrange his home how he likes. I know some people that quite often they move the furniture around. They say, no, I don't like it like this anymore. I'm going to move it around. And they move it and stuff. And, and they repaint the walls. And uh, they like, you know, it's like, a, it's like a fun habit to re, you know, redecorate things. But that's, they, have the, they have the opportunity to do that if they want. But you couldn't do that if you don't live in the home. The Lord is in our home. Jesus Lewis explains this in one of his writings. He says, um, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew that these jobs needed doing, and so you were not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. 
what on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing a new wing here, putting an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. And he intends to come and live in it himself. So my little cottage, quaint, just for room for one or two, or do I allow our, our Lord to make me into a, a palace? Yes, we are a living house for God, a home for God, where the Spirit will dwell. And we have to try to understand how, how this affects my behavior, my way of thinking, my prayer. That is, we should allow Him to do what He pleases, to shape you, to shape me into the person He needs you to be. Maybe there's some defects we haven't let Him knock down. Maybe some habits, even our thoughts, uh, that we habitually, habitually allow. Maybe we, we habitually allow a certain rancor, certain comparisons with others. And that's not the kind of house that He wants to be in. And we know that the light of the vocation has to really illuminate our passage through this life. It's a house that we're in, that we allow the Lord in, but at the same time, it's a house that does not long, last that long. It just lasts a, a lifetime, but that's just our life. And if He comes in, He also illuminates all the hallways, all the staircases, the entire living room. He illuminates it with good and pleasant lighting. And we cannot let the luminosity of our vocation to go out or to lose its focus. It has to be beautiful, luminous, which is provided not by our, our intellect, but by the light of the Holy Spirit. That's what keeps the lights on in our vocation, in our home. If you lose that light, we have to make efforts to recover that light. Just like if a light bulb goes out, well, we have to find the new light, we have to go, go to the, the tool room, find the light bulbs and with that that hallway needs a light. At the same time, at the same way, if our sense of luminosity to our vocation darkens a little bit, you have to recover it, it has to shine again with the strength that will enlighten our steps, if you like. It'll take you to the goal that you're set to achieve. But of course, at the same time in this house, well, there's the danger of wear and tear. As you probably may have seen, we had a gazebo installed in front of Ernstcliff to replace the former gazebo, which after years had started to rust. There were holes in the tarp. It was sagging. So we just got a new one on Amazon, that's it. <laughs> There's a new one, just click and you get a new one. 
And then somebody has to install it and you know, follow the instructions. Well, we can't just get a new vocation on Amazon. Sorry, it's just uh, we can't do that. You know, I don't know where you would search. You know, search vocation. You know? Can't do that. They don't sell them anyway on Amazon. Even if you have Amazon Prime, it's not. It's not going to work. And so it's important that we look at that. There are many possible causes for the loss of that light, of that luminosity of our vocation, where it could become a bit dim, could even disappear from our vital horizon, just by the way we work, by the way we approach things. It could no longer shine or illuminate our path, and it could even become a hindrance rather than a, than a, a true help. There could be moments of hesitation, a change of pace, characterized by a kind of fatigue, a kind of a fear, a loss of, a loss of uh, enthusiasm, a loss of real joy. Maybe we get more dominated by anxiety and fears than true joy and luminosity. We could have temptations against faith, against hope, and above all against love, that charity, which is what the Holy Spirit animates in our soul. But not if we evolve to a greater sensitivity and more astute guidance by the Holy Spirit. Things will not dim out or rust. Jesus will really dwell there in our soul and keep that vocation, the luminosity of our vocation, shining. Otherwise, we, we might never really acknowledge the grace of vocation, or at least we might cease in acknowledging its grandeur, its beauty, in the various tasks of our life. It could happen that a person's, the light of one's vocation no longer kind of illuminates everything. We no longer see the splendor of it. Our tasks could become tedious and boring jobs, those things that nobody likes to do, and it becomes, things become tedious. Well, the Father, we know, counts on you and me to do all those tasks, whatever they may be, with love, but illuminated by the Holy Spirit, illuminated by the Spirit of God, illuminated by the Spirit of the work. Which in many ways, when we say, do this with the Spirit of the work, it really means, in some way, doing it illuminated by the Holy Spirit. If not, it would be as though the vocation hindered us to achieve what we want to do then other lights would come in there to confuse us, maybe that would attract us more, it takes us away from our goal. And as we get older, we become more alert to this, more careful to avoid the dangers of lukewarmness, to learn from our mistakes, we have to learn from our mistakes in our vocation. I saw a stunt test recently of, of two cars, you know, when they smash two cars together to see what happens to the cars, and they put these crash test dummies in there, right? and then they, sh they put cameras inside, then you see in slow motion how the, the dummies, you know, go through the window or whatever, you know, in, in, the, in the crash, you know. And they did this, one time they did this with a 2022, like, Honda Civic, and then a 1957 Chevy. And let's see what happens. Like a typical 1950s car and a typical 19 or 2020 car, and they slow, they go in slow motion, they go bang, they smash head on, and of course 
you see the 1957 Chevy, you see the crash test dummy just like completely being destroyed. The, the person's neck goes flying, you know what I mean? You know, the person, the crash test dummy, it's not a real person, obviously. And uh, But he's destroyed, the whole car is destroyed. Whereas the Honda Civic, just boom, you know, airbags and everything, and the person is safe. The, the crash test dummy is safe, you know? or at least not completely destroyed. And um, that is the result, obviously, of many years of planning, of engineering, of experience. Uh, in other words, we've come a long way from those 1950s Chevys, you know, even though people like them and, and stuff. But, and so we too, in our vocation, have to learn from our mistakes. We have to learn from our errors you know, and, uh, and really r renew that luminosity of the Holy Spirit in us. Let us, let us ask this. And, and see, well, what did I, how do I react that time when I got down, when I got maybe sad, uh, or when I did my, my work in a tedious or humdrum way, did I, did I illuminate it with the presence, yeah, the presence of the Holy Spirit in my, in my soul, N you know, knowing that He helps me to uh, rejuvenate that fidelity, that presence of the Holy Spirit in my soul. Let's ask our Blessed Mother, to rejuvenate us, but above all, to be very conscious of God's presence in our soul. That has to be a home in which He can dwell. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you how to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.